gives us the opportunity to come back and fill in uh, because we know how important this pulpit is and the, the teachings that occur behind it. Um, today, if you, you can go ahead and flip there if you want to. We're going to pull a word from 2 Timothy 3, and we'll do our teaching all around that. But let's, uh, and while, uh, as you're flipping there, then let's go on ahead and enter into uh, prayer again. Father, thank you for your richness. Thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you, Father, that, uh, for your righteousness and your holiness. And as we open up your word and as we study it, thank you that you've given it to us to guide us, to guide uh, Christ's church, your son's church, and, uh, and how we are to be obedient to you and to love you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So there's a unique blending as far as with, with the teaching that we're looking at because the, the last time I was here, I, I've, I've talked a little bit about Hezekiah and the threats of aggression that occurred. And, and we looked at how those threats of aggression we, are extrapolated into what Paul warned about as far as in the last days and characteristics. So while I am going to pull something from 2 Timothy 3, we still have the base text that's from Hezekiah, but you, there's, you don't have to turn to 2 Kings 18 or 2 Chronicles. Um, that's uh, no reason to have to go there. But, um, but one thing I do want to lead off with is this week when I was reading in Jeremiah, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, um, Jeremiah wrote, For my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have uh, uh, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And as I read that, I was convicted about today's uh, message. I was convicted for us as the church that we've got to guard ourselves of what, of, of what is presenting, insidiously presenting itself within it. And we have to be in a place of, uh, of accountability for ourselves, accountability to one another, uh, of, of, what's, of what is present and uh, is getting a foothold here. So uh, a foothold in the pulpit and a foothold in the pews. So what about when, uh, when you look around our culture and you look within the church, if you're like me, sometimes I feel like things are unclear. They feel, uh, I get a little confusion at times. Bewilderment may be the best word that I could use for it. Uh, but, if, but disoriented is another word I think that can aptly capture it. But fortunately, when we're trying to get all this direction, we can turn to Scripture to see what to do. There, uh, there are, you know, think what comes to your mind when you think about things that have gone on this past summer within our culture. You know, you had the Los Angeles Dodgers honoring the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. You have, uh, within our public libraries, you have Drag Queen Reading Hour. Um, there's a Disney movie that started production back in February. It's about a teenage girl who gets impregnated by Satan. Uh, you know, and what we have now is our New Mexico House Bill 7. I mean, we know here within this body about how minors are giving uh, transgender-affirming support and care without parental consent. They attached it with the, uh, the abortion piece. And so there are threats of aggression against the church that are just are swirling around us. And the culture may do whatever it chooses to do, but the reality is, is within the church is where we have to protect what is occurring. 
And a critical theory is a huge player in what's occurring right now. And a, a, lot, a lot of us here have heard critical race theory, like the social justice movement, that kind of thing. But, but critical theory is this, is this root. And from critical theory comes feminist theory, gender theory, queer theory, critical race theory. It all springs from the same place. And that is what is uh, working to dominate itself, not only within the church, but it's showing, uh, within the culture, but it's showing itself within the church as well. And, uh, and if, if you're like me, I, I kind of look around sometimes and think, man, people who buy into critical theory, they, this is like a religion to them. It's, it's like a cult. They are so adamant about it and their belief structure with it that it, it's its own religion. And so, I, uh, and that's where some of my bewilderment and confusion came in. I said, like, well, I'm trying to understand it and understand how, how the church uh, maintains itself within a culture that is around it that is trying to engulf it. And uh, so, so I'm going to share a few things with you to establish a foundation so that, that helped me to get a hold on it so when I see the news and when I see things that are happening within churches, then I have a place to work from, and then that will help us build into uh, what, what we're talking about today from 2 Timothy 3. The, it begins with worldviews. There's within the church, I keep, everything is staying within the context of the church. There's Christianity we see within the church, but also what we see within the church is critical theory. So these are two worldviews. That's the, the, when I say worldview, that's the lens that we look at everything. I mean, when you go to, uh, go to the store or when you, uh, and, and you see things or when you see events happen or you watch the news, anything, any data you get, it filters through your lens of your worldview. That's how we make sense of things that are all around us. It's how we interpret our world. Uh, as far as with uh, Christianity, we have four, and a, a very simplified way to look at it is we have four overarching, uh, we have four acts with an overarching theme. That first of all, that God is our creator and he created the earth, he created the universe, he created mankind. Second is the, then the fall occurred, that we, that sin entered in and we were, sep- that we've been separated from God. Which leads to the third is redemption, the third act. We, had, we, we are reliant upon Christ. We have to have a Savior to, uh, to allow us to join back in with God and have that fellowship. And then we have the restoration. And those people who, uh, who are called by God and believe in His Son, then we have eternal life. That's, those, are, that's, those are four very simplified pieces of Christianity. And now critical theory. Is, is broken down into three parts. Uh, there's oppression, activism, and liberation. Their uh, oppression, the way they look at it, is that it's, it has nothing to do with the creator uh, as far as our, the, their worldview. And, and, and when I'm talking about critical theory, there are churches that are embracing critical theory. And so, so but creation is not part of it. It's all about the power dynamics of the oppressor and the oppressed about the dominant group and the marginalized group. So everything is about power dynamics. And so what, 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 what they push is, in critical theory, is, uh, is the oppressed group, the marginalized group, needs to be, through activism, needs to educate the culture, needs to educate the church, which are things that are occurring right now, they're trying to do, they're in, infiltrate. And then they, they strive for liberation. 
And the liberation is when there's the word equity or a word that we need to pay close attention to is diversity. And they don't mean diversity within the church of ethnic lines. What they're talking about is diversity of what's taught from the pulpit. They're not looking at uh, diversity in the sense of that a conservative pastor like Jim or a, or a conservative teaching by something that I would be doing, they're not looking for someone like us to go to their pulpits and talk to their liberal congregations. Diversity to them means that they get this pulpit and that while we may have our messages, that our messages begin to align with what they want. That's what diversity means, and that's how it impacts the church. Uh, there's a gentleman I like to read. Uh, his, his name is Neil Shinby. He's a, he got his schooling as a theoretical chemist, an extremely smart person, and, he, and, uh, and he, he writes on critical theory. He homeschools his four kids. He, he left uh, being a theoretical chemist, but, uh, and, and dedicates himself to homeschooling his children and then being a Christian apologist. And so I'm going to read a quote from him that uh, helps to give uh, help to me. It says, Critical theory also functions as a worldview, but it tells a different, comprehensive, overarching story about reality. The story of critical theory begins not with creation, but with oppression. The omission of a creation element is very important because it changes our answer to the question, who are we? There is no... Tr- uh, oh, let me see here. Where's that? There we go. Um, there is no transcendent creator who has a purpose and a design for our lives and our identities. We don't primarily exist in relation to God, but in relation to other people and to other groups. Our identity is not defined primarily in terms of who we are as God's creatures. Instead, we define ourselves in terms of race, class, sexuality, and gender identity. So, so when you see the worldviews within the church, are these compatible? And the answer is no. There is no compatibility between Christianity in the church and critical theory in the church. To embrace one is to give up something on the other. So, so any church that begins uh, embracing the social justice movement, the root of the social justice movement is critical theory. And, so, and then you have queer theory, gender theory, feminist theory. The roots of these come from critical theory. Back in the, uh, from the Frankfurt College, I mean it's, it's, it's contemporary critical theory has evolved over time, but it's nothing new, but it's manifesting itself heavily right now because of postmodernism is closing out and you have metamodernism emerging. And we're, uh, so, so are these compatible? In no regard. But, uh, but, the, but again, the reason I wanted to walk you through this is you get a, a little foundation to begin to understand that, that within evangelical Christianity, what they're wanting to do with when, when they talk about liberation is they want diversity from the pulpit ultimately. That's, that's, that's the end game. So when you think about Hezekiah, we talked about Hezekiah last time. How well did it work for Hezekiah when the Assyrians came to him? He had, I mean, Hezekiah, the king Hezekiah, had stopped paying support, had stopped paying homage to the Assyrian king. And about three to four years had passed, and the Assyrian king was making his way down to Egypt and was going to swing in there and take care of Judah and just run it over. Well, Hezekiah saw that a nearby Jerusalem town, Lachish, was being overrun, so, so he, he 
stripped the temple, took the gold, and uh, King Hezekiah did, and sent all this payment. He said, uh, please just let's stop. Let's, uh, ask the, the King Sennacherib to, to stop, not advance anymore. But it was irrelevant at that point. Because even though he paid the money, there was something more that the king of Assyria wanted. He wanted to overrun Judah. He wanted to crush every city. So how well did it work for, uh, for King Hezekiah to concede when these threats of aggression were against him? It didn't work, and it won't work for us either, because these two com- worldviews are completely incompatible within the church. But I do want to acknowledge something before we go any further. There are three things uh, in that critical theory gets correct. There is oppression, and Scripture is very clear that it is sinful. Uh, and it, there is no condoning treating the vulnerable in a bad way. Scripture speaks against that, and so does critical theory. And critical theory talks about bad systems in place. I mean, uh, because there are bad systems. There are wicked people that have worked historically through bad systems. I mean, look at the Holocaust. Look at slavery in our own country, slavery within the world. Those are, those are horrendous atrocities that occurred. And now, what are some bad systems in place? Sex trafficking, abortion. And the third thing that they, that is a positive of critical theory is that there are dominant, uh, I'll say a positive thing that they address is that there are dominant and marginalized groups. And there there are dominant groups that want to force their standards and their norms on the rest of culture. And that's something that critical theory fights against. But 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 I, I do agree that occurs because where else do we get our definition of what beauty is? Uh, what is success? And what are uh, what kind of and think about media, whether it's social media or whether it's you click on uh, and, and you watch the, the news. There's a, there are agendas at work. No matter what you watch, there are agendas that are present and they're at work. So there are dominant groups that want to push their norms and standards onto us. So, so that's the basis. That's the foundation. And uh, now what we're going uh, to do is we're going to begin to work into, um, work, uh, work into the teaching. So, so, so the last, uh, last time we talked about Hezekiah and the threats of aggression that he suffered under, that the people of Judah suffered under, and there were three specific ones that they worked, that the Assyrians worked to undermine the authority of King Hezekiah and God. Then the second thing is they asserted their dominance through intimidation. And then third, they worked to influence their thoughts. So we, we saw that the same thing that the chosen people of God went through in the Old Testament times are the same things, the same threats of aggression that we are under now as God's chosen people in this time. The culture is pushing, they, pushing these on us. And so when these characteristics that, that, um, that Timothy uh, is talked to about Paul, like, like these 19 characteristics, Paul warned them that know this, that in the last days, these characteristics are going to present themselves to people. And, uh, and we're going to see leaders within the church who are propagating these characteristics. Leaders that are going from bad to worse. They're deceiving and being deceived themselves. And this is what we will see. So these threats of aggression manifest themselves through, um, through these various characteristics that we see up there. These are looming threats 
that are within the church now. And we're warned to keep away from people that promote this. But today, we're going to specifically be looking at, in 2 Timothy 3, we're going to specifically be uh, looking at the word reckless. And, and what we see is that, is that the culture wants to influence our thoughts through an insidious opposition to truth. That, that from within the church, there are liberal theologians that have reckless behavior. And we're going to point out some of the scriptures that they use. I do want to make a, a, a short comment about what, uh, what in 2 Timothy 3.7, Paul warns us about uh, these, these false teachers, these people that will be doing these kind of things. Paul specifically says, they're always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of truth. Um, that they are, uh, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. They are men of a depraved mind, and they are disqualified in regard to the faith. So the word reckless, I'm associating it specifically with transgenderism. That's how it's... Uh, or what we'll be talking about. These are some of the loudest voices within our culture. Not specifically the people who identify as transgender, but the, those that are controlling the cultural narrative and they're pushing this narrative successfully into the American church. Um, to, and so, and so to, to, to get an understanding of critical theory, like what we, if you picture that, uh, the, the table I had up there for you earlier, the more, remember there's oppression, activism, and liberation. So critical theory teaches the more oppressed a group is, the more marginalized they are by a society and by a culture, then that means they have a lived experience that gives them their own kind of truth, and that gives them a louder voice. So if, if you want to understand why only 0.4%, I think it is, of our population are identifies transgender, well, they're the, the what critical theorists consider the ultra-marginalized group. So therefore, they get this really loud voice. That's why they're plastered every, everywhere, and, 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 and laws are trying to promote it and, and such. That's, if that helps a little bit. But what I do want to say as I work through all this text, that in no manner and in no capacity am I attacking a transgender person, someone who identifies as transgender. That is a reckless behavior. What this teaching is about is about those within the church, the liberal theologians. I'm, a, I'm going after the, their justification of why they're trying to promote it within the church and how they, are on, uh, how they, think, uh, they teach that gender-affirming surgery is biblical. So we're going to work through. There, there's, more, there's more scripture. We're only going to work through four that they use. We'll begin with Genesis 127. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Reverend Jonathan Talon is a New Testament lecturer. He's an early church researcher. He uh, is also a queer-affirming author. Now, understand when I, I, I use the word queer, it, it, there was one time in historical context that was considered a slur. Uh, when I read, I'll, I'll read articles that are LGBTQ friendly, like LGBTQ nation. I don't read them to learn from them. I read them to understand what, what they are saying and they're trying to propagate within the church. So 
So within their own magazines and within their, uh, I'm using their verbiage. So their verbiage identifies him as a queer-affirming author. Uh, he wrote uh, a book on um, why say yes uh, to the Bible and say yes to people who are LGBTQ+. I read an article specifically that he wrote, What Does the Bible Say About Transgender People? And interestingly enough, he opened his article saying, well, he had admitted that the Bible doesn't directly address transgender, but what he does is then he takes other sets of scripture to use it. First of all, he says, and this is one of them, Genesis 127. This is a quote from him. He said, God made male and female, but he also made intersex people and transgender. I want to clarify immediately, intersex people, that, that's a condition. That's a, that's a, uh, a rare birth defect. Transgender is not a birth defect. That's identity confusion. That's gender dysphoria. So, um, because there may be a biblically identified area of sin in somebody's life, doesn't mean that they get to keep it as a lifestyle. But think about Jesus' teaching as Matthew recorded it. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And when we follow Christ, we don't get to be hyphenated Christians. We don't, I don't get to go up to someone and say, Hi, my name is Robert. I'm a selfish Christian. Or, Hi, my name is Robert. I'm a lying Christian. Uh, you know, I'm a, an adulterous Christian. You know, I mean, that's not, whatever somebody may have been at some time, you don't get to keep that sin with you and you get to take it over here when you come to know Christ. Christ is very specific that you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow him. Whenever we are in an area of our lives that needs sanctification, we need growth in, then the expectation and the accountability of the church is that we hold one another accountable and that we grow in those areas. We turn from what the unrighteousness is. And what I, uh, there's a, a text by um, the Apostle Paul wrote this. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed but, uh, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I want to uh, share this scripture because the pivotal word on, in verse 11 here is were, and such were some of you. So Paul was speaking to people who had practiced homosexuality, who had struggled with being effeminate, who had struggled with adultery, who had struggled with being drunkards. He talked to people who had had struggles with that, and it said, and such were some of you. There's no hyphenation there. We don't get to call ourselves, like I said earlier, well, uh, uh, we, we can no more call, someone can no more call themselves a transgender Christian than they can a sexually immoral Christian, an adulterous Christian, uh, a thieving Christian. We identify through Christ. We don't hyphenate our Christianity. The, this reminds me of, uh, there, there is a, a segment of theologians who are trying to change were to are. 
which are some of you, because they realize that this scripture poses a problem for them when they are uh, to promote the LGBTQ agenda within the evangelical church. But that reminds me of the Nazis. Whenever the Nazis were able to uh, take over, the Nazi party were able to take over the German church, then they uh, began to change the German Bible to reflect their ideologies. So, you know, they stripped out the Old Testament because, they, because the Old Testament favored the Jewish people. So they took that out. And they, uh, th- th- that, these kind of attempts with the liberal theologians is, what, uh, is where uh, things are evolving to. So our identity is in Christ, not a people group, or per, uh, you know, uh, we, and we don't identify with, like I said, the hyphen Christianity. Whatever our struggle is, we don't pull that into our walk with Christ. I mean, we have, have to be sanctified and grow in our walk, but it doesn't define who we are in Christ. God defines who we are as his children. So I'm going to swing back to Genesis 1.27. We're still building this one out. There's another... Um, uh, another theologian, queer-affirming theologian, his name is Dr. Justin Sabia Tennis, and he's a professor at United Theological Seminary. He earned his graduate degree from Harvard Divinity School, and he holds two theology-related doctorate degrees, a very educated person. And he also argues for more than two genders. He said, we, he said you have to think of it like a spectrum. He said, let's look at God's creation. This is from an article that he wrote from his teachings. He said, consider it a, spect- a spectrum. You, as the day transitions to night, you have dusk. And as the night transitions to day, you have dawn. As you have land and the sky, you have clouds that are between. You have an evaporation cycle that allows an, a, a transition place. He also said, well, think about the water and the land. You've been to beaches, haven't you, where the two come together? Or what about wetlands? He said, and and so he uses that. He looks at creation and says, well, since God created things with transitions in nature, well, then that means there's uh, transitions in gender as well. And Dr. Talon and Dr. Uh, Sabia Tenes are both liberal, queer-affirming theologians. And they're interjecting into Scripture things Scripture doesn't even say. And they are promoting a reckless behavior. That's why I'm saying in 2 Timothy 3, when Paul warned Timothy, in the last days, recklessness will be present. Recklessness will be present by people who are false teachers within the church. And we see this right now playing out. Going back to Reverend uh, Talon, he infers, he says, Scripture does not tell us biological sex takes priority over gender identity. And, and he's still talking about Genesis 127. But what I say is this, well, Scripture doesn't tell us that they're separate. By Scripture not addressing it, it doesn't mean that it's ambiguous. It just means that what you're born is what you are, that your gender identity is to match with your biological sex. Now, are, are there issues where people uh, um, struggle with gender dysphoria, which is they struggle with their gender identity? Yeah, I mean, I was what uh, um, on sexregretchange.com. It's uh, it's run by people who have detransitioned, people who were transgender, had surgery, came to know Christ, and then. God, and, then, and now they re-identify with who they were born as because they've come to know Christ. 
And on that website, they give some interesting st uh, statistics. But one of the things they talk about when you talk about people getting confused about gender identity is that, uh, is that uh, they report that 80 to 95 percent of adolescents that question themselves, if they're not given uh, puberty blockers and if they're not giving, given uh, hormones of the opposite sex, that they grow out of it. They just question themselves, and then they grow out of it. But we're interfering. Me the medical profession and others are interfering whenever they do give these blockers and when they do give the hormones. And when Scripture, uh, by Scripture not differentiating between biological sex and gender identity, could it just be that gender identity is something that someone is confused about and they need to be referred back to Scripture if they're followers of Christ, that we should be speaking the truth in love. But when we have these theologians, these liberal theologians that are promoting this tr these transition ideas of look at nature and, and this is uh, what in the Scripture... Uh, D uh, doesn't, since scripture doesn't specifically ad address biological sex and gender identity, then there's room there to play with that. I mean, they are promoting a reckless behavior, and they're demonstrating what Paul said, that they are always learning, but never able to come to a full knowledge of truth. Second, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this surpassingly great power is from God and not from us. Reverend Talon uses this verse and says, what's more important, the, the, the clay jar or the treasure? Then he begins to say, well, you know, so what about the clay jar? If someone wants to have some gender-affirming surgery, let them have it. Because what's really important is what's on the inside of the person. He says that's what we need to be focusing on. And he thinks because we focus on the clay jar that Christianity is being reduced to biology. And he says that this verse erases that. Christianity is not about bio biology, is what he says. And he uses it to justify gender identity. But uh, uh, that it can be different than the biological, how you're born biologically. But he's taking it out of context, and he's turning it around. And I, I like this scripture by Isaiah, uh, keeping in line with the clay theme. Isaiah 29, 16, you turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Talon demonstrates, Reverend Talon demonstrates that he's always learning but never able to come to a full knowledge of truth. When we can look at this scripture uh, and and we'll, let's, let's, what does the scripture mean? We look at it. Let's reread it. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassingly great power is from God and not from us. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always consigned to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is not at so, that, so then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond comparison. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal." This scripture here is talking about the temporary clay jar that death is encroaching on it, that, that it's, it's wasting away, but 
the treasure of coming to know Christ and changing who we are on the inside, that's eternal. That is the part of us that's being renewed, like Scripture says, is, uh, that we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So that which God has given us, this opportunity to step into faith, is the treasure. This verse is not about gender identity and social groups. It's a display of God's power that he can put something, he can put a treasure within us, within this clay jar that is so fragile and wasting away that he can put something eternal in us that can last beyond how we exist right now and how we understand it. These theologians are always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of truth. Third, Isaiah 56, 5. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Um, Dr. Sabia Tennis, a, a queer-affirming theologian, claims that God rewards people with an everlasting name, and he says Isaiah 56, 5 is particularly beautiful verse for non-binary and transgender people. He said because it affirms the promise of an authentic name that is everlasting and is blessed by God. The, the problem with this is that this verse is not about a person being given an actual name that transcends gender or uh, biological sex. It's not talking about when it says uh, in a better name than that of sons and daughters. It's not talking about God's going to give someone a name that if someone is born a biological son and they transition and they identify as a gender-wise as a daughter, that they have a name that supersedes that. It does, or vice versa. It doesn't mean if someone, if 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 a young, uh, if a girl is born a biological sex as a daughter and she chooses to transition because she identifies as a male, that doesn't mean that God has given her a name that transcends that. I mean, what we're looking at is the fact, going back to the clay jars and the treasure that are within us. The power of God is at display, that God in His house and within the walls of His memorial. It's about God. These, the, the, the queer-affirming gender theologians try to make it about the person and what they're going through. When we are a people, we're Christians, we identify with Christ, we identify with God, we exalt God, worship God. It's not our choice of what we choose our, what we do have a choice of what we choose our obedience to be, but we're either obedient to Scripture or disobedient to Scripture as we understand it and read it. And so when we read Isaiah 56, 5, yeah, we identify with God and He will give us an everlasting name because He will protect us and Jesus may have extended something likewise to the woman who anointed his feet you know I can when Matthew recorded truly I say to you wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her you know but what, what did she do she was worshiping the Savior she was worshiping the Christ it wasn't about her but she's remembered for her worship so what about us? I mean, we're, we're called to live worshipful, sacrificial lives. That doesn't mean that it's about us. It's all about our Creator. Anything that, with, with this point that the, these theologians had inserted there is just conjecture. They're always in a place of learning, but never able to come to the full knowledge of truth. 
And then the, the final verse I want to talk about is a verse that we, see, uh, that, that we as pro-life advocates use. Now trans are using it also. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being formed in secret and intricately and skillfully formed as if embroidered with many colors in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The, the theologians that I've talked about what they do is they, they take the words fearfully and wonderfully made and they say that if, uh, if somebody is fearfully and wonderfully made, even though uh, if their gender identity differs from their biological sex, that is part of how they were fearfully and wonderfully made. And this is, and this is a catch right here. And because God wants them to have peace and wholeness, this is exactly what they say, because God wants for them peace and wholeness, that gender-affirming surgery to align the biological sex and gender identity is warranted. Where do they get that from Scripture? There's nothing in Scripture that says what they are propagating. But do you notice the claim they make of how to get peace and wholeness? Do you notice that there's no mention of Christ? Do you notice that they say, oh, well, you can get peace and wholeness by working on the clay jar? But the clay jar is just a clay jar. It is wasting away. It is dying. It is the treasure that we have from God that's the focus. They promise peace and wholeness to people that are searching, desperately searching for truth. And they pander to them and, and give them what their itching ears want to hear instead of speaking the truth in love. It's reckless. That's why I'm saying the, the, the queer-affirming liberal theologians that are within the ranks of the American church are practicing a reckless behavior. And, and there's other scripture they use. They say eunuchs are the trans prototypes. And they, I mean, it's just they, they don't stop in what they propagate. But I just wanted to, I wanted to share these four with you because it was enough to show that there's a clear pattern of what Paul talked about in 2 Timothy 3 that these that these evil men and imposters in the church are always learning and never able to arrive at a full knowledge of truth or never even able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. I mean, it is obvious to us within the church, which Paul also promised, which is an encouragement. It's encouragement to us, it's to all of us here today, and it encourages me, and I hope likewise for you, that Paul says that when all these 19 characteristics happen, that when we see this kind of reckless behavior, that it's going to be obvious to us. The folly of it will be foolish. And what did he go on? Uh, uh, Paul further warned um, Timothy in the first letter to him. Uh, and it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by the hypocrisy of liars who have been seared in their own conscience. Peter wrote about this. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will, be, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And 
and everyone promising peace and wholeness, the liberal theologians promising peace and wholeness, uh, they don't even mention Christ. How does that fit here? Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And we're seeing that malignment right now. Always learning, but never able to come to a full knowledge of truth. So, back to our word reckless. Them trying to influence our thoughts with reckless, with their peddling of reckless behavior. What does this word reckless mean? So we've built into all this, so here's the teaching right now. So here's, we've built into all this for this one word, reckless. Reckless means headlong and falling forward. It is how, the, how Scripture is referring to it here. It's, it's, this doesn't mean someone's headstrong or obstinate. It means that someone almost will act with, on impulse to do something because they, they act on impulse because they're not weighing out the consequences of what they're about to do. And so it's a reckless behavior. They have no deliberation in what they're choosing to engage in. You know, in the, in the opening, we talked about and discussed, uh, you know, in, about critical theory, giving voice to the marginalized and the pre- oppressed. So if somebody, if, if we do have a group of people, which we do, I mean, according to the definition of how the culture in critical theory looks at transgender, they are a marginalized group of people in that regards because they make up 0.4% of our population of people that identify as trans. Uh, out of a nation of 322.6 million people, I think we have, 1.3 identify as transgender. They, um, so as, as far as, so this marginalized group of people, they are on the periphery of our, even our society, but they're on the periphery and they're questioning who they are. They're at the base of who they are. And that's a necessity for us as Christians within the Christian church to hold people accountable for what they say within the church. Again, culture may do what culture is going to do. My role being here as, as, as a teacher is to help to edify the church. That's what all of our giftings are in Christ. We all use our gifts to edify the body, not necessarily to edify the culture, but to edify the body of Christ. And is this, uh, are they making headway? Think about this um, statistic that uh, if you look at the adolescent population for 13 to 17-year-olds, there was a, a, a study done, and so uh, and within that study, uh, they, they compared the year 2015 to the year 2021. In 2015, adolescents that identified as LGBTQ or non-heterosexual or questioning, so they were questioning uh, if they were heterosexual or not, so those three criteria, it was one in 10 kids identified in 2015 that way, in that category, LGBTQ, non-heterosexual, or they're questioning. As of 2021, uh, it's one in four. So are they not making headway within the culture? That's making headway within the culture, and it's pushing itself in the church. I read an article recently about some, some youth pastors that are struggling because because this culture, these kids are coming to their youth groups and they're trying to understand how to speak the truth to them in love. I mean, is this spilling over into the pastorate, into the pulpit? Yeah, did you know that the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship all have transgender pastors? It's reckless. 
We've, we've looked at the state of theology before, but I, I want to point something out. Um, do you, um, when this true-false statement is up there, God created male and female, would that be true or false? Well, we see that among evangelicals, 99% agree, yes, God made male and female. Uh, that statement is true. It aligns with Scripture. We looked at that in Genesis 1.27. And so when I'm saying the word evangelicals, that would be people like us in this room. Like, there's four qualifications for how the survey looked at evangelicals, that uh, the Bible is the highest authority in your life, that evangelism is critical because only Christ saves, that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross had to occur to reconcile us with God, and, uh, and then fourth, that our Savior is the only way to eternal life with the Father in heaven. So people who, the 99% of people who agreed with this said, yes, God created male and female. Now look at this next one. Gender identity is a matter of choice. How many people do you think within the evangelical church, the people that identify as evangelicals, those four areas, Bible, evangelism, the necessity of a Savior for eternal life, how many people do you think, you've got 37% of evangelicals say identity is a matter of choice. So is culture pushing its way into the church? <laughs> you better believe it is. Full force is pushing its way in. In fact, we don't look a whole lot different from the culture if you look at the U.S. adult population. But, that's fault. but, but, the, but that statement, even though 37% of evangelicals say that statement's true, Scripture says it's false. What does that tell us? When we have 99% of evangelicals saying God created male and female, and then you have 37 who say, uh, percent say identity is a matter of choice. What it tells us is that evangelical Christians, us, within our ranks, yeah, we believe the majority of us, def- the high majority of us, definitely believe that God created male and female. But there is a large group of us that say gender is on the spectrum, however people identify. That's reckless. The liberal theologians that are affirming this are reckless. And their fruit, their bad fruit, is being seen. It's reckless within our culture, and it's reckless within the church. So, what kind of thoughts should we have about this marginalized group of people? I mean, because if, if you look at them, they are a spiraling target for Satan's deception. Um, among adolescents that identify as transgender, they, had, they had identify with psychological abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I mean, they are our mission field. The people that are suffering under this are our mission field. There's a, a, I would recommend to see it. There, there's a documentary called In His Image. You can find it on YouTube. It's a, a Christian affirming In His Image. It's, uh, there are people that are in it that, uh, and I'll, tell, I'll talk about one because she represents every, every, all of a similar thread of people that are in it. But, uh, but she was born, her name's Laura, she was born as a biological female, but as she aged, she began to identify as a male. And she began taking the uh, hormone replacement. Uh, she actually had double mastectomy. And her parents were followers of Christ. She had been around a church setting. But, but she engaged in that. Uh, she questioned her identity. She engaged in that lifestyle. Well, in the midst of that lifestyle, she came to know Christ as a personal Savior. So she detransitioned out. And now she speaks against it. But w- w- something I thought that I, I really that stuck with me on what she said is that um, she said, I didn't go back. She said, when I needed help, 
I didn't go back to those who had lied to me. You know, she's referring to the counselors, the medical professionals who did the surgery on her. She had coworkers who were LGBTQ and uh, that, f- that uh, were gay, and they affirmed her to do it. She didn't go back to them because she realized they had lied to her. She went back to the people who spoke the truth to her in love. That's us. Those, that's our family members. It's our people that we work with. Those people around us that are struggling, they are our mission field. They are not our enemy. Remember that we struggle uh, not against flesh and blood. Paul is replete on pushing that. But that we struggle against spiritual forces in high places. So these liberal theologians have worked their propaganda into the church, as we've seen, into the evangelical church, and they are pushing it. And we have a responsibility to hold people accountable. It's not through ridiculing or spewing hate or judging people who identify as trans, realizing they are a mission field and that we are to show them love by speaking the truth to them in love. There are many looming threats that are up on top of the church today, and about 12 of those uh, can directly be linked to critical theory. Um, um, So there's much more to teach on this. There's the threats of aggression. They course through all those characteristics we just shown. And there's a common thread that we see that Satan uses. And Scripture says Satan is the god of this age. This temporary time that threads through, that he threads his threats of aggression against the church through these varying characteristics that Paul warned about. And I want to close uh, with this right here. There's a, um, there's a book that Zachary had given me um, called uh, Piercing Heaven. It's on Puritan prayers. And, uh, and so I was, I was reading one of the prayers by David Clarkson, and he was a pastor. Uh, he was alive in 1622 to 1686. And in 1662, the Church of England had the Act of Uniformity where they were forcing all the clergy to uh, to follow the common book of prayer, and they had to do specific rites that, were, that, that they put into it. Where the 2,000 clergy rebelled against it, David Clarkson was one of them, and he was expelled from, his, from the church, expelled from his work that he did as a pastor. Well, uh, part of the great ejection of 1662. But, but, but what, it, what I like about him is that he had conviction, and he followed through with it. He had a conviction to do something, even though it cost him his job. And, and it caused him his work through the Church of England. So I've, uh, there's a prayer that he wrote, and, and we're going to close with this, and, um, and you're welcome to read it. I'm going to have it on the, the screen, and, and you're welcome to, to silently read it. I'm going to read it out loud, or you're welcome to close your eyes in prayer. But then, um, but then the, as the band, uh, as the worship team comes up, um, I'm, I'm going to read it. Lord, uh, it's called No Hope Without Christ's Righteousness. It says, Lord, I would be the most miserable person in the world if my hopes were only in this life. Why? Because I'm hopeless without Christ's righteousness. My life could never be comfortable, and there would be no hope at all of eternal life. But I cannot be happy without the righteousness of Christ. If I had all things that a person could desire on earth, what good would it do me without Christ's righteousness? What comfort would honor bring me if I remained a sin of perdition or a child of wrath? Lord, however you deal with me in outward things, whatever you take from me, whatever you deny me, do not deny me Christ. 
do not deny me a share in his righteousness. Amen.